take the leap of faith and just dedicate all your time and energies towards this one thing that you're really passionate about. Our goal is to find the right companies that can make a difference. There are a lot of opportunities that are now coming to the fore, which people may not have even explored if it wasn't for the unfortunate effect of the pandemic. This is the language of business podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot, or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we look at a startup that began as a side job and launched before they got funding. It's a small business in India called Acorn. They make beautiful, practical, high-quality cribs and bassinets, all locally sourced. And we'll hear about a venture capital fund called PropTech, looking for just that type of investment in commercial real estate. Here's Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. Everyone, and I do mean everyone, has a side hustle. But what happens when the rubber really meets the road and you decide to leave your job job to start your side hustle full time? We're on location with Kiari Shah of Acorn calling in from India and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. So good to be here. How long after graduation did you start Acorn? I graduated in 2018 and I started working on it in 2020 and we officially launched our marketplace in 2021 February. And how was it with Acorn as a side hustle and finally launching it full time? Having a day job and then having a job that practically dictates your entire life is can be very time consuming, can take a toll on every part of your life and every aspect of your life till you decide to just go all in and take the leap of faith and just dedicate all your time and energies towards this one thing that you're really passionate about. Whereas Acon did begin as a passion project for me and will, I think, always continue to be so. About a month ago, less than a month ago, I decided to take that leap. And now I am working full-time on Acorn and Acorn continues to be my day job now. When you were working in your day job, which one was dictating your entire life, the day job or Acorn? Acorn, I can't lie. It is when you start something that has secretly been niggling at you for years, when you finally give it your all and get into it, it's a thought that never quite entirely leaves your mind. I could be working on a presentation and then, oh, shoot, that's a good idea. I want to go back to my notebook. I want to go back to my drawing book. And I would just want to get the idea out and just leap into it. There is no middle ground there. And then after a while of juggling both, I don't know how successfully I did that, but I did do that for almost two years. And I quickly realized that I can't have a foot in each boat. So I do need to commit to this if I want to give it its best shot. Did your bosses know about Acorn or frankly, did they not care? I think a little bit of the latter. Everyone who's been a part of my life in the last two years has to have known about Acorn because I'm not quiet about it and I'm not shy about it. It's been a little bit of, Oh, yeah, she probably does that on the weekends. But no, I would be doing that at midnight, at 2 a.m., at 8 p.m., depending on when the vendors are calling or when there is a product testing coming up. That was my entire life outside of my day job. You are sourcing from vendors all over the world, but currently you're in India. Formerly, you were in the Midwest in the United States. 
Did you move to India because of sourcing concerns or for some other reason? A little bit of correction there. I'm sourcing from India. So Acorn is actually very proudly locally sourced only, adhering to that sentiment of trying to buy local and produce local, which has been going in the last few years in India. We sell in Pan-India and we also source only from Pan-India. Our entire USP is that we work with skilled local laborers and we give them designs that are up to a certain international standard. And that is how we're producing these products. I still very much do live in the US, currently in the Midwest, but I am in India for product testing and a few vendor meetings. We're in the midst of increasing our supply chain and increasing our tie-ups with local vendors across the country. We don't want to restrict ourselves to just one state. Our aim is to penetrate tier two and tier three markets eventually. So that does require a lot of local networking and traveling and being here in person. So I'm here only for a short period of time. Though I do foresee a rather lot of up and down for me in the future, but I will continue to reside primarily in the U.S. And how do you communicate with the U.S. while you're in India or vice versa? Zoom has been very helpful. If anything, the last two years have taught us that business can be done online. Where you are does not have anything to do with where you're working. That said, I also have a partner in Acorn who is very much located in India, in Mumbai. So she is my eyes and ears on ground. And she's the one who covers up for me when I'm not around. Primarily, I handle the content, the branding, the designs, whereas my partner oversees the marketing, the logistics, and the on-ground infrastructure for Acorn. The theme of this episode is startups before funding. What funding requirements do you have and how do you envision raising those funds, please? We have a very clear path towards funding. We absolutely are looking for funding. For us, what has always been very important is to be cash flow positive. And we have succeeded to be cash flow positive as of this year. And we continue to remain in that zone. Right now, our primary requirements for funding would be to explore and expand our supply and vendor chain. And I would foresee putting most of those efforts into marketing and canvassing. And by marketing and canvassing, I mean both physical and online. With Acorn, the idea is to create a certain niche of product that meet a certain design that a certain design standard that works internationally and we are definitely in the sort of upmarket zone there so it is a little harder to sell i can't list this on amazon that's not the crowd we're looking for we would have to have extensive canvassing to just network and sell this product by that i mean pop-ups exhibitions tie-ups with other brands that work in the same space increasing my vendor base and searching for mechanized option for Acorn products is going to be my next aim because that would lead to standardization, which I think is, in my experience, has been the biggest challenge with working with local vendors and trying to organize majorly unorganized class of labor. These are people who exist in neighborhood capacities. Trying to organize them takes a huge amount of resource, a huge amount of time commitment and personal involvement. I would eventually like to standardize and computerize this process to a fair extent. As you're raising those funds, are you doing so via friends and family, debt, equity, or some other vehicle entirely? So right now, we're entirely self-funded. When we do feel prepared that we have entered regional markets enough and we have expanded enough to need added funds, we would 
be reaching out to every source available to us. And that includes local grants, that includes working with organizations in our vicinity. There's a lot of infrastructure in place currently to promote local businesses, and we would want to make the most of that, employ all of that. What is your 30-second pitch on what Acorn does? Acorn manufactures and uh, designs furnishings for children, accessories for children, and looks into personalized and innovative gifting options that can exist only on a customizable base. So our USB is that we're open to customization. We service Pan India and we deliver to tier two and tier three cities that do not have access to these kind of products. We do that by working with local skilled craftsmen and thereby we promote the make in India sentiment that currently exists. Kiari, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Gregory. Kiari Shaw, founder of Acorn. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Next up, we talk to Raj Singh, who runs PropTech, a venture capital fund looking for the right investment in commercial real estate when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Westrom. You're listening to The Language of Business and our look at businesses getting going before they get funding. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. What goes through the mind of a venture capitalist before they actually fund a startup? And what happens if that startup is just okay as opposed to a grand slam? We're on location with Raj Singh from Jones Lang LaSalle, joining us from the West Coast, and welcome to the Language of Business. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me, Greg. What is PropTech or property technology? PropTech or property technology is an umbrella term which talks about all the sorts of technology that we might apply to the world of real estate. That can be pretty broad, so it stretches from construction and the design of buildings all the way through to the management and use of buildings and pretty much everything in between. Happy to get into the details. The one thing I would say is that it means different things to different people, as often terms do. But we use it in that very broad sense, construction all the way through to you know, actual occupants using the building day in and day out. So Jones Lang LaSalle or JLL has a venture fund, an internal fund of sorts that is focused like a laser on prop tech, correct? Exactly. So Jones Lang LaSalle, for those who don't know, is a Fortune 200 company based out of Chicago. We're about 100,000 people in over 90 countries. And our mission is as a commercial real estate broker. We help people get into buildings, build buildings, manage buildings, sell buildings, and so on. 
Our people have realized over the years that there is technology out there that will allow landlords and tenants to get more out of the buildings that they either own or use. And we have determined that for JLL, it makes sense for us to invest in some of those technologies in order to bring them to us as a business or to our clients. So for a company that's 260 years old, we're getting with a modern view on how real estate should be managed going forward. And in 2018, we stood up a venture capital group, which is part of JLL. We call it JLL Spark Global Ventures. and means exactly what you think that means. And the idea is that we source great technology that can be useful to us as a company or to our clients. If you think about technology, it's a pretty complicated thing. Not everybody's up to speed on it. So we try to act as a broker to help the companies that we work with to understand how technology can make a difference to the way that they run their businesses. And so far, so good. Been an interesting ride. You mentioned that PropTech means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Is PropTech the fund? Or is PropTech a portion of the overall JLL Venture Fund? JLL Spark Ventures focuses only on PropTech. But as I said, it's a fairly broad uh, range. So on the one side, we have companies we've invested in who are bringing new technologies to building buildings. On the other hand, we have companies that we're investing in that are around financial services. How might you, as somebody who owns a building, how might you finance that building or perhaps sell that building? And so it's a very, very broad range. The way that the lens that we operate uh, works is that if we can use it ourselves or if we can see why our customers might use it, then for us, it's prop tech. Does your investment thesis work then like a traditional venture capital fund that of your investments, you're looking for either an IPO or some sort of sale, merger or partnership? Yes. And here's why. We believe that we have a strategic mandate. As I said, we want JLL and its customers to use the technology. However, the problem is if we invest in any old company that might be relevant, if they're not well run, if they're not successful, they can't be strategic because they won't be around to be strategic. So in some ways, it's actually harder for us as a VC to find great deals because they have to be both strategically relevant and financially viable. As I like to say, losing money is never strategic. So our goal is to find the right companies that can make a difference and eventually also produce a wonderful exit through an IPO or an acquisition or what have you. This must be a challenging time, though, to be in the commercial real estate business with so many people working at home. And some of these buildings, unless it's the past couple of months, really dormant for several years. How has that affected your returns or the funds management, et cetera? I am not at liberty to talk about the specifics of the returns, but I will say that things are going very well. So counterintuitively, in some ways, a lot of landlords are turning to technology because of the very things that you just mentioned. So if we don't have full occupancy, if there's more competition between buildings to find the right tenants, perhaps the technology that they employ could make the difference between somebody choosing them versus somebody else. An example would be a category that we call the future of work. If I can provide your tenants with a wonderful experience, maybe they'll want to be in the office a bit more than they do today. Moreover, we know that offices are not going to go away, but clearly the usage patterns are going to change. 
So if it's the case that you have a wonderful building downtown with a great view and super amenities, perhaps you need to be thinking about your tenants who might be hybrid workers, sometimes in the office, sometimes at home. Some of them might convert to being fully distributed, very rarely coming into the office. Then you need to be thinking about things like flex working. Could I use the space I already have and have other companies who aren't long-term tenants use that space? So think about WeWork and what they were trying to do, but just do it without having to worry about what WeWork does. And so there are a lot of opportunities that are now coming to the fore, which honestly speaking, people may not have even explored if it wasn't for the unfortunate effect of the pandemic. I happen to agree with that. I love how innovative your venture fund is being. Even though it's innovative, is the fund still a traditional 10-year, 7 to 12 investment company fund? Or is that too going through its own set of innovation? There is a lot of innovation happening in the venture capital space and not before time. In our case, the way we do it is that we have a series of shorter funds. So the cycle for the fund is a year or two at most, and then we just build a new fund. So it is a traditional LPGP style fund, but shorter cycles, and we call it a $100 million evergreen fund, by which we mean when we get towards the end of the fund, we spin up a new one. And we find that allows us to be more flexible. It means that any one particular fund might have a good return without being drowned wider 10-year vehicle. And we want to keep our options open. Maybe there'll be other alternatives about how we might deploy capital in the future. And so I think we don't want to necessarily be locked into that 10-year cycle as so many VCs are. So if that's the case and you're taking an evergreen mentality, which I like, by the way, does that mean you're still looking for either pre-revenue or Series A type investments? Or would you be tilting more towards mezzanine or latter stage in order to get those exit strategies done and the capital recycled more quickly? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And so our focus is very much on those earlier stage companies. Now, we're lucky because we have other vehicles that we can use, including the company's balance sheet, to invest in later stage companies if that's appropriate. But for us in the fund, we're very much focused on post-seed Series A types of investments. We even have a small incubator in-house that we use when we want to spin up ideas that we haven't found great answers for in the market as well. So very much early stage focused. Our view is we should be looking a few years into the future, finding technologies that will be relevant and valuable for our customers perhaps not today, but tomorrow and the day after. And um, the other thing that I think is very important for a fund like us is to think about optionality. We have our strategy. We have our view of where the world is going. We're probably wrong. To make sure that we can take advantage of what we're doing in the fund, we like to invest in the core strategy and around the core strategy, such that as the world changes, we have a few bets already placed that we can take advantage of as things change. So, I see our job is to look into the future around the corner, perhaps not too far, but enough that we continually generating interesting options for the core business to be able to use. I liked your use of the phrase optionality. How have exit strategies been so far during the life of the fund? And has that had to have you change that optionality a little bit here, a little bit there? 
We've had a couple of good exits from the fund so far. We're very pleased with it. The fund overall is doing very well. I would say that right now we're in rougher times, choppier waters, if you like, and we're not expecting to see many big exits right now. We have not changed our strategy, however. As an evergreen fund, we can be quite patient looking for those returns. We don't want to have to sell or to look for an exit in an inappropriate time, simply because the mechanics of the fund make a difference. I happen to agree with that. I think that is sound judgment. Out of curiosity, have those exits been sales or IPOs? They've both been sales. One of the companies that got sold was a company called Honest Buildings that was bought by Procore, and then Procore subsequently went IPO. So we had the best of both worlds. Congratulations, that's great. For somebody that is interested in being an LP, a limited partner, what would be the allure of them investing in you as opposed to a non-evergreen fund? So we haven't taken outside money. All of the money's come from JLL itself. But I think the allure would be a combination of a fund that is run along financially sound lines, but attached to an organization that really understands the business. So as a VC, I might invest in something and I might be super smart about that thing. But if I don't have depth of experience, there will be those small little gotchas that you don't realize until perhaps too late. We have the advantage of having 100,000 experts out there that we can go tap. And a lot of the CVCs, corporate venture capital people have talked about those things. We really do live and breathe them. We do have that advantage. And I would say, honestly, the real estate industry is very complicated. Ownership is complicated. Regulations are complicated. Building is complicated, so you do need to have that. So if you were an LP and we were looking for one, that would be the reason you'd invest in us because we really do know what we're talking about. Raj, thank you very much. My pleasure, great to talk to you. Raj Singh, who runs Jones Lang LaSalle's PropTech Fund from the West Coast. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswee Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.